Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and on this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Amy Victoria Adkins-Jones. Dr. Adkins-Jones is an assistant professor of theology and African and African Diaspora Studies program at Boston College. Her work specializes in Mariology and Black feminist thought. Dr. Adkins-Jones has her MDiv from Duke Divinity School and is also the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate from Duke University in the field of theology and ethics. Also an ordained Baptist minister, Dr. Adkins-Jones brings a pastoral side to her work and her teaching around issues of identity and justice. I hope you'll find this conversation meaningful as we discuss Mary, human trafficking, the theology of suffering, and much more. Thank you so much, Amy Victoria, for being with us today. With most of our audience in academia, can you share a little bit about your educational and spiritual background as well? and how you ended up in your current vocation. Yeah, thank you so much. I actually have a really interesting story. I never thought that I would be in academia. I never thought I would be in ministry. It was not something that was on my horizon. I became a religion major in undergraduate, and while I was an undergrad, um, by accident, I was seeing someone at the time and it was time to declare a major. I had thought about being pre-law, but politics, government, these weren't majors that really felt like they were resonating with me. Mm-hmm. And my boyfriend at the time said, you know, you really think theologically, you should major in religion. And I had no idea what he meant. I had no <laughs> <laughs> clue what thinking theologically was. But three days later, having not taken a single religion course before, I was a religion major. And that (laughs) is nothing but God. That really sent me on a path of imagining myself and imagining my call and my career, my vocation differently. I have had a number of these incidents in terms of how I ended up continuing my education, but I was doing um, social work in a ministry. I was applying to social work school. I had a couple of really wonderful people in my life say, hey, have you considered actually going to seminary, going to divinity school? And I ended up going to divinity school through that process. And while I was in divinity school, I was imagining that I would become a community pastor or that I would work with a nonprofit I didn't really feel called to senior pastoring yet. Um, So Mm -hmm. I was trying to figure that out. I ended up being asked to join um, a group of folks who was traveling internationally and working with women who had been sex trafficked, got back to divinity school, ready to quit because I felt like there weren't enough resources available that I just hadn't really learned anything to help me grapple with this. And Mm -hmm. I had a mentor say, well, if there aren't resources here that you think pastors and people, Christians need, have you considered that maybe God is calling you to write those resources? Mm -hmm. And I ended up in a PhD program and now I am 
a professor and, you know, writing is writing and teaching have been the path that's been laid before me and that I've really, really been blessed to walk down. Awesome. So you shared your boyfriend kind of reflected to you that he thought Uh you thought in a theological way. How did you end up sort of getting to that space in your life? So this is when you're an undergrad, right? Like your first year. year. What shaped you to become a person as a 19 year old that was, you know, thinking theologically all the time? Well, I, I really didn't know. I mean, I should, I should find him and ask him. I don't even know. (laughs) I just grew up in a world where people took care of one another. I grew up in a really small town. Both of my parents are from that small town. You know, you know, everybody you go to church with, you know, everybody's family, you know, it's the kind of place where if you're going to date someone, you have to check to make sure you're not related. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You know, I just, I grew up with a deep sensibility of community and care for one another and a deep sense of how God forms us and shapes us and blesses us with that that sense of gift. And it wasn't until I was out of that world and there, there were problems there too, right? I grew up in a small town in the South. So it wasn't really until I was in college that I was realizing that so many people see the world differently, that I, I really realized in new ways, how much racism and sexism and misogyny I had been exposed to. I, you know, realized leaving the country for the first time, how poverty, how inequity, how injustice was rampant around the world. And I just kept feeling like, well, if churches took care of the people who were around them, right? If churches were really doing the things that we say that church is supposed to be and being in community for one another, wouldn't some of these problems not be so egregious? Mm. And I wanted to know more about that. I wanted to know more about what I began to feel was a very limited slice of who God was and how God was working in the world. And that was something that really drove me. I cared a lot about people and I I wanted to figure out how to help, but I already had an awareness that I want to, I want to be able to contribute to helping, but not contribute to harming, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was just a very, you know, young, but sincere, (laughs) perhaps somewhat naive at times, but a sincere desire to spend my life in a way that would bring about more goodness in the world. Mm, I love that. And then in the midst of seminary, fast forward, you know, how many years you said that you did some work with human trafficking. How did you get into that area? Yeah, purely by accident. I was slated, you know, I had my sort of summer planned out. I knew where I was going. I knew where I was going to be serving. And essentially someone asked me if I would join a small team of folks who were going to be visiting a number of organizational sites throughout Asia. Um, And if I would be willing to come and then stay to stay in Calcutta for some time and to learn about some of these issues and, you know, to think about, think about race and gender and some of the more critical theoretical questions that 
I had a background in, if I could bring some of those questions, you know, to the organization. Uh, it was an organization that's predominantly white, working in these very uh, under-resourced areas in the world. And I, yeah, I changed plans. <laughs> you know, it was mm-hmm. one of those things I had have a tendency of like switching gears within 24 hours. I changed all the plans, you know, ended up on all of these flights, ended up in all of these different sites and was completely, prior to that, I had been completely unaware to, of um, human trafficking and sex trafficking in the world. It was not quite yet the the trendy issue uh, it has since become, but my, the resonances that I felt between being being a descendant of slaves uh, with folks who were being enslaved in a contemporary moment was overwhelming for me hmm. and it felt like something that i had hope around in terms of the possibilities but i was also devastated by what at the time i felt like the church really wasn't dealing well with in part because i don't think that the church has really dealt with the legacy of slavery in the Americas as of yet either. So like I said, I was ready to quit divinity school. I was traumatized and upset Mm -hmm. (laughs) and became really challenged by my mentor and then the person who became my academic advisor, Willie Jennings, who's at Yale now, to stick with it and see what God might be speaking to me through through my rage, you know, through my righteous indignation. Mm-hmm. And then, so do you mind sharing a little bit about what God was speaking to you through that time? Absolutely. I felt that before we could understand or try to fix all of these issues of trafficking, I really felt like there were a lot of questions and a lot of very convicting questions that. Christianity, that Christian thought, that Christian theology has not asked and has not been willing to answer. Namely, before we can talk about human trafficking, before we can talk about sex trafficking, we have to be willing to talk about sex. We have to be willing to talk about gender. We have to be willing to talk about sexual abuse and sexual violence. We have to be willing to talk about uh, economic disparity. We have to be willing to talk about abject poverty, right? No one, you know, sells their daughter just because they don't have anything better to do. We have to talk about all of the ways that racism and uh, something that Gayatri Spivak said, you know, all of these, we have to go save all of these brown and black women from their brown and black men, right? We have to think about all of these horrible and gross, uninterrogated stereotypes, you know, that allow for generally a a white savior complex to, we're going to go in and swoop in and save people. We're going to kick down doors. We're going to make this happen. We're even going to pose as, you know, potential buyers, you know, to get people out. And it's like, well, wait a minute. We aren't asking where all this came from. And we also aren't asking about the ways that the church and that our own theologies and that our own commitments to capitalism have been the conditions of possibility for this in the first place. And so for me, I had this burning question of if we really, really want to address long-term and large-scale 
this problem, right? Like slavery has been happening for years and years and years from, you know, since before the early church, right? Where does this come from? At this moment in our society with so many different interlocking and intersecting oppressions, for me, I, I wanted to know, well, wait, how do certain kinds of bodies become available for consumption in the first place? Hmm. So that has become essentially a big piece of your current research, right? Yes, yes. So that kind of answers that question of how you ended up in the human trafficking aspect of your current research. I know another aspect is the study of Mary. Can you share a little bit about how you, uh, especially I, I worship in the Catholic Church, so I'm most curious about your research about Mary as well and how your studying of Mary has led to other paths of research. Well, I think that historically, when people are thinking about Christology, when think, people are thinking about the person and the work of Jesus, and when people are thinking about theological anthropology, you know, what it does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? For me, the questions that I was asking so readily and very obviously went back to Mary. Mary as the source of Christ's flesh, Mary as a young woman who lived in a very precarious position, who was invited by God into something bigger, but something that was full of risk, full of opportunities for her own exploitation, all of these different kinds of questions. And I'll be honest, I was in India and this has happened to me around the world in several different moments and places, but I remember a specific time um, a woman had let me play with her young baby, her toddler. And I was holding this toddler. I was out in the street. The toddler, I remember she peed all over me. <laughs> As okay. Toddlers, as toddlers are you know, want to do, you know, we're just right. out in the street. And so I remember like getting all dirty and the woman, you know, the mother was quite flustered, but you know, it was, it was fine by me. But I remember her asking me if I could take her baby back to America with me. Wow. And this was something that, you know, in my early twenties was just harrowing to me because I had a very deep critique, a trenchant critique of all of the things that like America was not doing. And yet mm -hmm. I had a very deep awareness of how much inequity exists around the world and how wealthy we are in the U.S. How someone would get to the point of wanting so much for the future of their child, for the conditions of their child, like that they would be willing to give them away, right? Like this really, right, really powerful moment. And it's obviously, it's not for a lack of care or concern or want. And if anyone has been an adoptive parent or experienced, you know, going through adoption with someone, I mean, you understand the immense amount of sacrifice. And I was, I was just stunned by this moment. And I, I really kept coming back to these questions of gender and race and sexuality. And it seems like the obvious place to begin to think about these issues and to begin to think about what some have called the education of desire um, around the, how 
women's bodies, how reproduction, how reproductive histories have manifest and emerged in our world, Mary was the obvious place (laughs) to begin thinking about these questions. And I really was concerned with what felt like you know, the Marian dogmas as they exist in the Catholic Church felt so much like they were policing Mary's body, the hmm. need to protect Mary's body, you know, from any any infiltration to protect her from any sense of impurity, right? And so right. Mm-hmm. this idea of purity in regards to virginity, but this idea of purity that becomes associated with whiteness through colonial expansion. I wanted to interrogate that. But I also, growing up in the South, where Catholicism, you know, they worship Mary, it's all taboo. I really felt like the the history of Protestantism had really just said, okay, Mary, thanks so much for your baby. We'll take it from here. Like, like we don't even need you. (laughs) Like, thanks for just being this, you know, vessel for God's will. That's really cute. You know, be it unto me according to your word. And like, now let the real, you know, manly man work begin. Mm. And I, I was like, I think, I think that there's a space in between and looking, you know, to actually the, the people who, you know, have actually gotten the Catholic church to make dogmas or, you know, make official these Marian ideas, you know, the church that wasn't coming down, you know, from the top that was happening because so many people were finding these experiences of Mary that were miracles and these, these aspects of Marian devotion, but also there are these spaces of black Madonnas, these traditions of, darkness of dark women's bodies being seen as holy, being seen as reflective of of God's word, as being theological, as being sacred in a way that seemed to be completely antithetical to the ideas of rape and conquest that, that we're still living in the legacies of from our own Christian colonial histories, if you will. So for me, Mary was... You know, plain as day, as we would see, say. Back then. <laughs> it, and and I, then I was shocked because the more I dug into it, the more that I was thinking about these kinds of questions, the more even that I looked in terms of some of the histories of Black theology, of womanist theology, even Muharista theology. You know, there's a lot of writing on the Virgin of Guadalupe. But mm-hmm. the primary sort of question was like, oh, Mary... Mary's this really incredible, really rich, theological, inspirational, devotional resource. And we have, we have missed a lot of generative conversations because she's dropped out of so much of our theology. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I wanted to bring that back. <laughs> Yeah, so I haven't studied Mary at all to the depth that you have. I would identify, I guess, as a Methodist slash Pentecostal turned Catholic. So um, yeah, I was kind of born and baptized Methodist, came to faith, like for myself, a personal faith in the Pentecostal church, and then started dating my now husband, who was born and raised Catholic, is now a Catholic youth minister. So I became Catholic just a few years ago, but have been worshiping in the Catholic church since about 2006. Anyway, like you were saying, there's this piece of Protestantism, if I can make Protestantism an ism. It is. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, the where we've like we're so afraid that we're going to worship her, we're going to worship Mary instead of Jesus. So we better just write her off altogether, right? And um, in my own journey, I've really come to appreciate who she is. I mean, obviously, I think there's that fine line between. Um, earlier you, you had said, you know, in the South, they, the Catholics worship Mary. And I don't know if you were like meaning they honor her a lot or legitimately if they worship oh, her. No, I, that's okay. like a Southern conception, right? Because oh, right. Okay, right. Yeah, is so minoritized. So that was, that was what I grew up with. Like, oh, gotcha. okay. you know, they, they worship Mary. So you got to be careful. You know, those Catholics are weird. They have a, they have a Pope. You know, a lot of just right. oh, yeah, absolutely. sincere ignorance. And then, you know, later in my life through different fellowships, it was like, oh, well, Catholics, you know, college fellowships and different things. I mean, I, and I don't agree with this, but, you know, well, Catholics don't have access to the full truth, you know? So these, these ideas of, you know, who's right and who's wrong dogmatically right. and Catholics mm-hmm. were, you know, and Catholics and by extension, Mary that was something that you didn't want to touch uh, right. for, in so much of my experience. So that's what I meant. I want to definitely okay, clarify yeah, that. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> clarifying that. At first I was like, wait, what? And then as I heard you speak more, it made more sense. But I know on my end, you know, uh, my husband and I, when we were first um, married, during our first year of marriage, we were going to become members of a of an evangelical church. And, you know, they sat him down and, and asked him, sort of gave him a, a theological test, if you will, you know, and some of the questions were about Mary. Do you believe Mary is the co-redeemer? You know, they were so afraid of his theology and yeah. what he might be bringing in that was, you know, to be feared. So right. anyway, yeah. So I love that you're not, you know, you're not Catholic and you are. I am not. <laughs> entrenched in the study of Mary. So, yeah, I guess the next question then, what has been most meaningful to you personally about your research? Well, you know, that is a really large question. I think I think there are two things that I should mention, and I'm not sure that I can say like the most, you know, the, like the superlative thing. But oh, something yeah. that I've come to realize for myself is that there are a lot of academics who ask a lot of different questions. I am frequently asked, well, you know, like where do your ideas come from or like where you know, what's driving you. And I've never had a burning question um, that didn't arise out of community, that didn't arise out of friendships, um, that didn't arise out of uh, questions of injustice or inequity in community and in relationship. So Mm -hmm. for me, I'm not the kind of person who can sit and study and research and read and write and not have not have people in mind not have people sitting in the room with me academia has well it has a lot of ups it has a lot of downs just like any other you know arena of business and academics is is a business now uh, sure. so we have to be honest about that but the thing that keeps giving me light and life are that I want, I want to be a part of making art and creating justice and keeping a conversation going that creates a better world. You know, that's, that's what happens with my students. That's what I'm trying to accomplish and be faithful in, in my writing. 
And that's what, that's what keeps you going through what really is, you know, it can be, be very, you know, there's a lot of long days, I'll put it that way. But I think one of the, the images or, or the ideas that constantly heartens me and strengthens me, you know, when I began studying Mary, I began studying iconography and the traditions of iconography, the theology of the icon, this idea of how, you know, asking these questions of how we do or do not see the divine um, Mm -hmm. in our world and in one another. And one of the icons that is fairly prominent in the Russian Orthodox Church, but that has had a message for me that has just been so beautiful. It's, it's an icon of the burning bush Hmm. and the burning bush in that particular tradition is seen as a prefigurement of Mary and this idea that Mary's womb, that Mary's body, soul, spirit are on fire with God, but not consumed. Hmm. That idea of how we can be on fire with something, how we can be a flame, how we can be light in the world and not be consumed. The resistance to consumption, particularly in so capitalistic a world where everyone's supposed to be a consumer, <laughs> where everyone is themselves a commodity, this resistance to consumption in so many different forms is something that has given me a constructive model for how we think about trafficking, but it's continued to give me a constructive model for so many different ways that we encounter and inhabit our lives. And it's so beautiful to me. It's something that I just hold in my mind and and my heart that reminds me constantly of what it is that we're trying to, trying to be a part of in the world. Hmm. Yeah, I never had heard that connection between the burning bush and Mary. Yeah. Sort of on fire. It also, as you were sharing it, made me think of one of my favorite passages in scripture is the the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. And then when they're when they're reflecting after they realize it was it was Christ, it was Jesus that was with them, how they say, Did not our hearts or were not our hearts burning within our chests? Mm-hmm. That idea of being so on fire, inflamed, um, and yet not even in that, in that instance, not even realizing it. Yeah. I, I love that. I love it. <laughs> well, so we're about to be um, in the season of Lent and I don't know how much you traditionally observe Lent, but I'm curious if Lent is something you observe in your faith tradition or personally, and if so, in what ways? Yeah. So I would say that I was raised conservative Southern Baptist and national baptist so in a black baptist tradition okay. but i i have traveled and journeyed with so many d- different denominations and that's that could be a whole other podcast um, i was yeah. a worship leader for a long time so at one point i was singing in a baptist choir and then leading a contemporary worship service at a charismatic service and then coming back and singing in the compline choir at night i was booked on sundays <laughs> for a long time and have really loved worshiping and celebrating in a lot of different traditions and learning in those ways. I have almost always celebrated Lent, even with that sort of, you know, semi-Catholic unawareness that can happen in smaller towns and in the South. We always celebrated Lent, have always 
seeing Lent as a period of, of consecration and remembrance. But in my life and in most of my religious and spiritual life, Lent has also been a time of deep contrition, deep recognition of the injustices in the world, a time of deep reclaiming and commitment and movement to action in the world in, in preparation and in remembrance of Christ's, Christ's death. So it's, it's definitely important to me my husband now pastors a church. Part of our Lenten celebration include not only you know the commitments to fasting and to prayer, but also a deep sense of recommitment and to different actions in terms of how we live and grow and are present in our own communities and the issues our communities are facing. So with Lent having a strong focus on the suffering of Jesus, as well as thinking about just modern day suffering, like you referred to injustice and even from small, tiny things, partially why I asked this next question, my son recently had had a stomach bug and it was on a day that he was really excited about going to school. It was like, he was going to be part of the uh, geography bee. And for, you know, a 10 year old boy who's kind of nerdy, our family's all kind of nerdy, I should say. (laughs) Excited about it, been waiting for it all week. And then he woke up with a massive stomach bug. And later in the day, in his, you know, thoughtfulness, he was like, why did God allow me to get sick on the day of the GOB? And I'm like, oh, buddy, I I don't know. (laughs) So the age old question, you know, all the way from like, tiny things in the scheme of the world to like, massive injustice. What are your thoughts on the age-old question of why God allows suffering? Yeah, you know, you're just asking the lighthearted questions today. Um, (laughs) Suffering, go. You know, I'll tell a story. So last summer, I essentially, I had a surgery. It was supposed to be a spine surgery, supposed to be quick, easy, to the point came out of surgery, wasn't feeling well, had a couple of procedures done, still wasn't feeling well. And essentially I woke up one day and was, you know, was called, had to call 911. I couldn't breathe. Mm -hmm. I couldn't move. I was sure that I was dying. It turns out that I, in essence was, I had been given (laughs) uh, contracted bacterial meningitis during the surgery no one knew about it. And so they caught it really in just the nick of time. Um, the infection had spread. Um, I had a tear in my the dura, so the lining that surrounds your spinal cord. All of my spinal fluid was leaking. The infection had spread to my, spread to my bloodstream. And so for actually the past few months, I've been on medical leave. I've been you know, in and out of the hospital. I woke up in an ICU with a drain in my back and unable to have anybody visit me without, you know, gloves and masks and all of these things. You know, I couldn't see my kids. I couldn't, you know, lift my head above 10 degrees. It was, it was this horrible, horrible experience. And I remember just not, and I mean, still, still in recovery to many, in many ways. And the the complications of that have left me, you know, physically unable to do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And I, I was asking like, God, God, why? I had just 
become a bonus mom to these beautiful children. I had just joined and married the love of my life. I, you know, have this great career, you know, everything, everything's blooming and everything's on the cusp of all these wonderful things. And I'm so happy and I'm so grateful. And then to feel the fragility of all of that, that's so difficult. And I didn't have an answer to why, you know, I don't have an answer to a lot of folks seem to be scared. I don't have an answer to sin in the world. I don't have an answer to evil in the world. Um, but I was so surprised. And this is this comes from someone who has pastored, right? Like I've got all right. the degrees. I'm teaching. Yeah. Like, right? I, I, was the answer. <laughs> I, well, I had no idea how much it would mean to me that so many people were praying for me. Mm. And were saying that they were praying for me and were sending me their prayers. I had no idea how isolating and alone I would feel, but how comforted and surrounded and held by God I would feel through the words and the actions and the love of my community. Hmm. I had students who had never taken a class with me because, you know, I ended up they had to cancel all of my classes last minute. I had students who had never even known me send me emails saying that they were praying for me and thinking about me. I mean, people I, I had never seen, never heard, had no reason to take the time to do that. And I was so moved and so overwhelmed by what felt to me like such love and grace. And I don't think, this is what I'll say about suffering. I've prefaced this, I don't have the answer. But sure. what what is so theologically germane for me, and, and I tell people, I preach it all the time, everything does not happen for a reason. Mm. It doesn't. It doesn't happen for a reason. And we shouldn't, I don't think that there's always going to be fruitfulness for us, right? Like in the limitations of our human creaturely bodies to try and find the reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that can drive us to our ends in many times, Mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes things don't have a reason and I don't think everything happens for a reason, but what I do believe is that there is nothing that God cannot use towards justice and goodness and love in the world. And so when I wonder about suffering and especially not just, you know, my sort of individual experiences, right? Of like, life is hard. Life is tough. We have our ups and downs. And, you know, as Christians, we claim like there's nowhere that we can go that God isn't, you know, there's nowhere we can make our beds in the depths of hell and God will be there. There's nowhere that we can go that God isn't going to be there with us. And this is, this is why the incarnation is so beautiful and so holy that, that, our, our savior is with us no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through. But for me and thinking about, okay, well, why, why does God allow suffering? I'm much more interested in the question of why, why do humans allow so much suffering in the world? Mm. You know, why are we so comfortable and so accepting of the suffering of our neighbors You know, even when there's, you know, quote unquote, acts of God, natural disasters, people, people don't experience those, those, these terrible things that we don't have control over. People don't experience them equally. They experience them along the lines of 
inequity and injustice that we've already drawn in the sand around different communities. So I'm, I'm much more interested in the question of why are we so accepting of, of things that we can be a part of changing? And why are we not challenged? You know, I ask my students this all the time. Why are we not challenged by the privilege of having, quote unquote, compassion fatigue, mm-hmm. right? Like, why are we not challenged that we are so overwhelmed and seemingly paralyzed by, an, by inequity when there also seems like there's so many places for us to start and for us to also change how we live our lives? And I think having gone through a very traumatic personal experience, right? Of like almost dying yeah. out of the blue. The grace of surviving that is that when you are truly living a life where you're full of gratitude for every single moment, I think that that does overflow into your commitments and to one's own dissatisfaction with the world as the way it is. And if I'm going to keep living in this world, then gosh, golly, <laughs> I am going to be a part of changing it, you know, with, with every breath that I still have. Again, it reminds me of that passage where, you know, the, the disciples are on the road to Emmaus and they're in the depths of their grief and Christ is with them and they can't, they don't realize it. You talked about just the presence of people in your life when you were in this suffering where you felt isolated and just like what is happening and here you know people that you hadn't even met before were reaching out to you to let you know that they were with you they were their thoughts were with you their prayers with you and but also you know it's more than just thoughts and prayers right it's now you have this motivation to continue in the good work that you were doing before and keeping on with being the solution to the suffering. Yeah, I, you know, we get a, and I give a lot of lip service to, you know, thoughts and prayers. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, writ large. But there is something to a community that trusts God, that recalls God's words and God's promises to us, and that asks God to be God in horrible situations. Um, but it's the it's the kind of prayer that also, you know, asks us to move our feet. And it is it it's not it's not good for humanity to be alone. Mm. And when we are bound together and when we come together, I do think that the miraculous can happen. The impossible becomes possible. But it's never it's never a solo mission. Sure. Yeah. So going back to something you said earlier, you were, we were talking about the university and being a business. So kind of shifting gears back to being a woman in academia, since most of our listeners are, are going to be women in, in higher education in, in varying life stages to what challenges have you encountered specifically as a woman in your career journey and even more specifically as a woman of color? Oh gosh, it feels like what challenges haven't I encountered? Um, you know, I think there are there are so many barriers uh, across across different fields, right? Like academia is not special in this way that don't 
always value women's voices, that certainly don't value women of color's voices, um, a lot of spaces that don't value trans men and women's voices, don't value differently abled voices. There's all, there's all these different voices that aren't valued. And I've, I've certainly experienced that. I've experienced so many passive aggressive comments or even, even, (laughs) even just, you know, things that are inherently racist. And those are not always things that are intentionally malicious, but that doesn't mean that they cause any less harm, you know, even if we were to attempt to value someone's someone's intentions. Right. But I think that for me, in terms of, you know, breaking glass ceilings or kicking down doors, one of the things that was shocking to me is that there are, like, I'm still a novelty, right? I'm, I'm still a rarity in so many spaces, even in my field. You know, I'm on a wonderful faculty. I pretty sure I'm the youngest faculty member. We are less than a third women. There's only two. I think I'm only, I'm one of only, it's going to be three people of color. So, I mean, like this is, these are like less than 7%. Um, And, and it's not, it's not special, right? Like I'm not alone in this experience because so many of my colleagues of color also are the rarities of their, you know, within their subset of these demographics. Mm -hmm. And so there are so many challenges to that, right. In terms of the expectations, you know, I was, I was speaking to someone and it's like, if I do a great job teaching and students love me and I'm getting all of these wonderful evaluations, right. Yeah. It's because I'm magical, right? Like, like it's because, oh, she's just naturally charismatic, right? Like it's, oh, well, she's just, you know, got away with the kids and she's just young and understands Twitter. And it's like, well, actually I work my tail off. I work very hard at what I do. I work very hard not to be perfect, but to be as excellent as I can. And so it seems that if you're excellent and you're wonderful and people like you, you don't really get credit for that, even though all of the statistics say that women of color are marked down, right? Like we wholesale receive lower evaluations. We wholesale get criticized for things, you know, without it being brought to our knowledge. But when you do well, sometimes it feels like you don't get credit for it because it's just, oh, it's natural, right? Like these are, these are deeply embedded stereotypes. But then if you don't do well, <laughs> like you mm-hmm. also don't get credit and it's like the same sort of hyper visualization right you are hyper visible in every space that you're in it's hard for that to be merited towards you in ways that are meaningful and in ways that have tangible effects on your career you know women still get paid less than men you know uh, there there are all of these tangible factors but what has been important to me is one i'm i enjoy my work i'm very committed to it I have not, I don't think that every job has to be necessarily one's vocation. I think that it's okay if you work a job, you know, to live your life. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, all of these things, I think finding your joy and happiness has got to be more than how you spend your hours at work. But I have been very blessed to find a deep synthesis with that for myself. But that being said, the reason that I am so 
nitty gritty. You know, the reason that I considered not coming back to academia after being so sick, you know, you just want to stay with your family, you know, you kind of want your world to be smaller. But the reason I came back is one, I feel like I have something to say and something to say that matters, something mm-hmm. to, something to contribute and something that I want to leave behind. But two, I feel like I did a lot of, I was able to kick down doors because there were a lot of people who loosened hinges before me. Mm. And for everything that I have been able to press through and have been kept through, you know, being the first black woman to graduate from my program, it was the it was at the time, like the top program in religion, you know, being the first black woman to do X, being the first black woman to do Y. I've been the first so many times in my life, even though it's still 2019. And I want to make sure that I am doing everything I can to make space for a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. If I'm the first at something, it's not because I'm the first black woman who's been qualified. It's not because I'm the first black person who's ever thought to do something. We are still living in a world that has so many boundaries and impediments. And I just, I want to be a part of kicking those down and making sure they stay down. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's a litany of things that you, you might experience. Um, I even, I even was told once that maybe I, maybe, maybe I was hired, you know, someone saw me in my regalia and Mm -hmm. They were just in awe of me, you know, in my robes and, you know, I study Mary and so my, my PhD regalia is blue and they were like, oh, it's blue. It's like, it's kind of like Mary. It's kind of like all of these things. And, and they said something and they said it in public around a lot of people. And they said, you know, I think, I think maybe we just hired you for your looks. What? And... <laughs> You know, what do you, what do you say in a moment where like now you're publicly sort of shocked you weren't expecting that this is in front of colleagues, right? Like this is in this very open space. And I had enough of a relationship and a point of concern. I don't think that you always have to do this. It's not my responsibility, but to go back and speak to this person and explain to them, you know, they thought that they were really giving me a compliment. Um wow. and to explain that there are so many levels at which you're undermining, you know, my presence in, in this space and reducing it and reducing everything that I have to work three or four times is harder to accomplish in this world than, than, than you have. Right. And I mean, you, this person would even say this for themselves, you know, things were just sort of given to them. And even in moments when they were mediocre, like they were, they continued to ascend uh, the ladders of academia to really bring to their attention the kinds of the kinds of struggles that we're still facing and that it's a privilege to not be aware of. Mm. So I think that that's probably not a clear answer to your question, but the the aspects of discrimination are real, but there's also there's also a commitment to to growth and to justice that keeps me that keeps me pushing within boundaries, you know, within limits, but keeps me pushing and and reminds me of the importance of my own presence here, you know? Right. And I appreciate that you said about your response to this person that made that comment, that it wasn't necessarily your responsibility to address it with, with her. It was a woman, right? That said that? Yeah, it was. Yeah. 
that it, you don't have to, because that in and of itself seems just exhausting. I mean, first you have the comment and then having to revisit it and go back and be like, hey, let's have this conversation. That could be its own second trauma. I mean, not yeah. that it's, I mean, <laughs> enough of it added up compounds it. So I appreciate that you said that you didn't, it's not your responsibility, but yet you had the relationship with that person that you could enter into that conversation. So, cause I feel like if you had to address every single thing that you experience, every microaggression, you would be constantly having conversations with people. Oh, I would never get anything done. And I would probably always be really, <laughs> I'd be happy in my therapist's office far more than yeah, I already absolutely. am. I'd be very right? upset. Um, yeah. But, you know, I had a student ask me at a recent film screening and I was being interviewed. I had a student ask me, you know, we, we have racial events on our campus. We have racism on our campus. We've had so many different things happen. And it was a black student. And he, he asked me, you know, how, how do you keep it all together? You know, like how, mm. how, how do you keep showing up every day in the midst of all this frustration? And one, I think it's knowing that your frustration is, is valid. valid. Yeah. Um, the anger is valid. The rage is valid. In fact, I think that there's something holy about being angered by injustice. And I think that if you are a Christian and you are not angry, then something is, something is mm-hmm. off. But you also have to take care of your soul. Again, like we can't, we can't create change just by ourselves, but we also can't be a part of change. And particularly in this country, you know, it's, if you are in a minoritized position, the assault just feels relentless of racism, of everything from grabbing people by the knee to blackface to how people are treated on our borders. I mean, it, it is, it is nonstop. And the only way to survive that is one, to be bound to others, right? So that no one's bearing this burden and no one's just isolated doing this work alone. Um, but it's also like you have, you have a divine command to also take care of yourself mm-hmm. um, and to figure out when and how you will move. You know, I never, I never put it on uh, someone who has, is a survivor, someone who has been experienced racism, you know, it's never, it's never your job to fix it, (laughs) you know? And, And that's, that goes back to the sense of suffering question, you know, God, why do you allow so much suffering? Well, that's a little harder to explain when, you know, a very sweet son, you know, just really wants to be a part of the geography. (laughs) But when it comes to, you know, well, wait, why do people in Flint still not have clean water? Right. To me, like there's a point where like, that's not God, that's us. And we can fix it. And there will be a time, like we are accountable for, for that. It's, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, we are. Mm. But we just, I can't say that we've been the best at acting like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, my son's question about the GOB was certainly like the tiniest thing to be contemplating about. But I think underneath it too is, you know, he has seen the news reports of school shootings and the Pittsburgh shooting most recently. Yeah. And the one in 
and the one in Parkland. And, you know, he's just sitting on the couch in tears, me walking into the room, not realizing that the news was on. And he's like, why would someone do that? And I'm like, I don't have an answer except that they had hate in their heart. And how can we, how can we live differently? How can we extend love to people? How can we be lights in, the, in a world that's dark? And yet, yeah, I mean, there's no easy answers, even for adults. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to solve that one today, but probably not. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's worth thinking about, right? And right, absolutely. we're thinking about, well, right. Like so many times our, our, our sense of personal suffering is linked to a broader you know, right. framework yeah. of, of suffering and it's linked to much larger senses of community than, than ourselves. Right. Like, I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't want my family, you know, to see me, you know, I didn't want my kids yeah. to see me like that. You know, I wondered about, you know, what would happen to them if they would, if everybody would be okay, you know, oh, yeah. if I died, right. You have these larger, larger questions that are, existential and yes but they're also really bound to I think care and concern for one another even even something as small as a as a GOP you know wanting to be in community and I worked really hard you know I want to represent myself and my family my school really well you know like (laughs) I, I think that there's something so so sincere in that and yet we we struggle to have conversations about gun control. I don't know the mentality of someone who was willing to kill children, but I also right. don't understand why it's so easy to get a gun. And I think that those are equally important theological considerations to make. And I'm constantly, hopefully, pushing students and I've... <laughs> I've learned that I've even, you know, pushed some of their parents, <laughs> um, <laughs> our, our churches, our communities, you know, to ask the kinds of questions. Well, what do we say that we live by and what is the world we want to live in? Well, we could chat forever, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we're going to try to wrap it up just because I think it's been almost an hour. So I we no like to, it's been such a joy. <laughs> just, <laughs> I hope it, I'm just like, <laughs> it has been for me too. So <laughs> We'd like to conclude the podcast just asking our guests if you would share a particular quote or song or other set of words that has been particularly meaningful to you lately. Yeah, so there are a couple of ways to answer this question, but someone who has mentored me and meant a lot to me, her name is Dr. Angela Sims. She is at the St. Paul School of Theology, and she is a theologian and ethicist. She does Black Church Studies and we've worked together on a couple of different initiatives. And one time during a board meeting, she's very good with plants. Um, and so, you know, we're always asking her and some of the other folks about their gardens. And once she said um, recently in the past few years, she said in passing, and she was talking about her plants and things that weren't growing. She was like, well, if there's a little bit of root, anything can, can grow again, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea that if we just have just the smallest bit of root, right? The smallest bit of history, the smallest bit of truth, the smallest bit of resilience that we can grab onto that new growth 
and growth of a new world, growth of a new living, flourishing creation is always still possible. And that's just something that has meant a lot for me. It's meant a lot for me as I've had to recover and, you know, reimagine the limitations of my own body and my own energy in new ways. It's meant a lot to me as we've witnessed so many different atrocities in the world from our campus to our communities, that if there's still something, some little bit of love and hope that remains and we can tap into that, there's still always something that can grow. That to me is just such a vision of hope. It's not a vision of hope without work or trial and error or, you know, a long-term vision. We may not see the results of the seeds that we plant, but I think that it reflects so much of what scripture teaches us about time and about space and about the vision of God and the coming of the kingdom of God in a world that that seems like it's getting further and further away from that. Continuing to plant, continuing to water, continuing to trust that the sun will shine is something that I think allows me or encourages me uh, to keep a certain sense of resolve no matter what happens. Yeah, that's a really hopeful image to be sort of left with at the end of this conversation that has felt kind of heavy in some ways. (laughs) A little bit. I didn't mean for it to, but... (laughs) No, that's all right. I mean, it's reality. And if we, um, you know, as you were saying at the very beginning, we have to examine and look at the foundations of of the reality of the injustice in the world, Um, our history, our legacy of how we got to this place where slavery still exists. But then we're left with this image of even if there's just a little bit of life, we can still, there's still the ability to have growth and life and redemption. So yeah, thank you so much then, Amy Victoria, for thank you sharing your time with us, for your wisdom, your stories. Really appreciate it. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.com org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.